You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi C. Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. We have Alyssa manning our phones today. For the time being, if you can get through, we have a special guest. But if you want to attempt to get through, it's 844-999-9249. Or you can email us questions, answers, comments at Let's Talk Torah, no apostrophes, Let's Talk Torah at gmail.com. Or you can just pay attention and listen. Lots of good stuff today. Um, we're going to have a special guest. Her name is Deborah Levine, author of The Liberator's Daughter, um, a fascinating life. She writes about her life. We're going to talk about it, about her father as a liberator in the Holocaust. Just really a fascinating story that you don't want to miss. Just as a heads up, lots of exciting things on the horizon. We're going to have a, a, a fantastic special pre-what we call Tisha B'Av show, or the ninth day of Av, that uh, saddest day on the Jewish calendar because the temples were destroyed. We have a special program that we're going to even do some off-site stuff, so I'm all excited about that. And of course, we'll get into our regular stuff, talk about the Torah portion, talk about uh, how two tribes didn't want to go into the land of Israel and what were they thinking and what happened in their conversation with Moses. Um, we'll have a special segment again. This time, it's uh, we pre-taped it with uh, Rabbi Jonas and Goldson. Um, He's actually learning quite well. He's keeping his stuff under two minutes, and I think you'll appreciate what he has to say. Okay, so at least in our first segment, let's talk the Torah portion, and we'll talk to Deborah um, after our first break. Okay, the name of the Torah portion is Matos. It's really a double portion, Matos Masse. Matos um, is from the word Mate. We didn't have that as a special word yet, and that's not our letter this week. But a mata really means a stick. That's what it comes from. A mata is a stick. Um, maybe it was used as a walking stick. It wasn't a scepter-type stick. But it was a walking stick. It was a stick. But the word also means tribe, which is interesting. It has actually numerous meetings. I, I bought a book last week, and he talks about all these different words. It's fascinating. And just the question is, why is a tribe referred to as a stick? And perhaps... Um, the the head of each tribe would have his special stick. And the sticks in those days, it was a walking stick. It was something you leaned on. A- and maybe we want people in a tribe to know they have whom to lean on. They're not on their own. You're never on your own. There's always people to help you out. There's always people to talk to. You should never think that you got to go it alone because when you go it alone, you make mistakes. We hope our children, just as an example, um, my children call me when they have questions. You call, you speak to parents, you speak to friends, you speak to rabbis, you speak to whoever is someone that you respect because that's the person that you get to lean on when there's things that are bothering you. So that's just an interesting word I wanted to touch on. What I really wanted to touch on was um, were, were two things that happened in this Torah portion. The first one is the, the boundaries 
for the land of Israel and how the land of Israel will be divvied up is actually in this week's Torah portion. Actually, it's not a complete division. It's almost like um, central areas. There'll be 12 central areas, and then each tribe will go to that central area and sort of spread out to, for wherever his tribe fits. So I just want you to think for a second. Here you have the Torah being written before the Jews go into the land of Israel. And God is telling them, you're going to go in, you're going to win the battle, and this is where each tribe will be. You know, that takes, uh, I don't want to say it takes a lot of guts. That takes prophecy. That takes knowing the future. Only a God can say that this is what's going to happen in the future, and this is where you're going to be, and this is where you're going to be located. Otherwise, what, what regular person would say the future? If the Torah was written by a man, then that man would write, okay, you're going to go conquer the land of Israel, and we'll see what happens after we go in to conquer it. Not with all the future plans and places and locations. It's just not how you write a book unless you know what's going to be in the future. So as a, as a, as a thought about the, the we'll call it the divinity of Torah, that, that Torah is divine, that it was written by a God, not by a person, it's, it's God who, who knows the future. Without, this is not the time or place, even though I just heard somebody talk about it, if God knows the future, I know we all know the famous question, which we're not going to get involved in because it's, it's not going to help most of us. It's very philosophical. Um, how does God, if God knows the future, I don't have a choice. That's like the most famous question. It's been answered about a hundred times, a thousand times, whatever you want, but not something we're going to talk about today, but I can't remember. I, I answered it about 40 shows ago, which is pretty good. We're getting close to 50 shows already. There must be something special about the number 50. I don't know what yet, but I can't wait. Anyways, then we get into something fascinating in the Torah portion. You have these two tribes, the, the tribe of Reuben or Ruvain and the tribe of God, and they do not want to go into the land of Israel. They want to have the land in the last few Torah portions. Um, we have already had some wars with uh, a king called Sichon, a king called Og, and we've conquered all this land on the other side of the Jordan. Would this be what you call modern-day Jordan? Probably. Would it go up into Syria? Also probably. So all that land we already had. And we're getting ready to go into the land of Israel. And all of a sudden, these two tribes, they go to Moses and say, Hey, Moses, you know, we would rather stay on this side of the Jordan. So as soon as they say that to Moses, he's, he's incensed. Like, we, if we go back in history... We've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. To remind us, why are we wandering in the desert for 40 years? Because about 38 and a half years earlier, there were a group of spies. They went to the land of Israel, and they said, we can't conquer it. It's too hard. God won't be able to do it. And therefore, the Jewish people cried. They got nervous, as we've talked about in the past. Be careful what you ask for. And the, the Jews didn't want to go in. So God says, no problem. You're not going You'll die in the desert, and the next generation will enter. So Moses says, this is what your ancestors did. The last generation got people nervous about going into the land of Israel. So, so what are you doing? Like, what, what are you thinking? And now the, there's really a double question here. So Moses is laying into them. And fascinating, they obviously must have an answer. They don't answer. The leader it's hard to imagine this in modern-day politics. 
But um, you just go back a few generations when the concept of respect um, existed. When the leader lashes into you, he, he lets you know you're doing something wrong, you listen. Maybe you'll give an answer. Maybe you won't give an answer. And at this point, they're not giving an answer, and they have answers to give. But they're just standing quietly and listening. It seems from what Moses was telling them that their biggest concern, that Moses' biggest concern was, you guys are going to park yourselves here, and you don't have to worry about the upcoming battles with all those nations in the land of Israel. So after Moses finishes that whole conversation, the children of Ruvain and God say, Moses, you completely misunderstood. Of course we're going to go to battle. Not only will we go to battle, we will be in the front. We will be the front soldiers. We will help conquer the whole land of Israel. No problem. We just want this land. We have a lot of cattle and a lot of sheep, and there's a lot of good grazing land here. Again, if you look at modern day, that part of Jordan and Syria, I don't know how much grazing land there is now, but... Then there was tremendous grazing, and they wanted that grazing for their animals. They had a lot of animals. So, um, so they said, uh, we, this is a good location for us, but of course we'll lead the battle. So Moses says, fine, and we actually learn a lot of laws of conditions. Moses makes conditions with them. And uh, one more little side point. Um, when they're talking to Moses about what they're going to do, that we're going to build corrals for our animals, and we're going to build cities for our children. I don't know if they had to build from scratch. That area in those days happened to have had a lot of, uh, of fortified cities, which they destroyed in battle. But all they got to do is rebuild those cities, and their children will have a place where it's safe. But interesting, they said to Moses, we want to build corrals for our animals and, and cities for our children, wives, children. And um, Moses um, doesn't like that sentence. What's wrong with that sentence? Moses says, no, you're going to build cities for your children and corrals for your animals. They said the animals first. They said, let's build corrals for our animals. And then we'll take care of the kids, the children. And um, I know every same time I said kids. You ever have a teacher that says there's no goats in my class? Why are you saying kids? Never heard this one before. Okay. But when when well I've heard you've heard you heard this one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a pretty standard dad joke. That's a, that's a dad yeah, joke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. So I don't think they said kids. But in any case, um so Moses says your attitude is all wrong. First, you take care of the children. Children are first. Family is first. Business which by them was their animals. Their animal was their livelihood. Their animals was their business. First, take care of the family. Got a house, got a place to stay, everything is settled. Then you can take care of your business. So Moses first had to, had to lay into them to make sure that they planned on fighting, which they always had planned on going. They just wanted this land. And then he has to make sure an attitude, we're going to take care of the children first. We're going to take care of the animals second. Um, but now, a, a really, a third question comes to mind. Really, like something that, that would seem to be quite important. Um, we'll probably talk in a couple weeks from now. Moses prays over and over and over and over and over again. He wants to go into the land of Israel. Um, there's many commandments that can only be done in the land of Israel. Anything that has to do with land, with crops, um, bringing things to the temple, building a temple... 
all those things can only be done in the land of Israel, and Moses wanted to go in, and God said, sorry, it's not happening. Why doesn't Moses ever say to these two tribes, hey, guys, the, there's so many laws in the Torah that revolve around the land of Israel. You can only do them in the land of Israel. What are you thinking? You, you can't live outside of the land of Israel. You're going to lose out on all that stuff. And that question, Moses never asks. He asks them about going to battle, um, how they're going to take care of the kids. That he asks. But he should ask the most basic, most important question of, what, what are you guys thinking? Like, you're going to lose out on all the commandments. We've been promised we're going to go to a land, flowing milk and honey, and, and you completely ignore um, the most important part of going to the land of Israel, all those commandments that can only be fulfilled. That question should have been asked. So, interesting enough, there's uh, different commentators. Nachmanides who lived uh, probably in the 1300s, maybe the 1200s, he answers something very fascinating. He says any land that we conquered in those days qualified as the land of Israel. And any command that could be done in the land of Israel, almost anyone, um, could be done on the other side of the Jordan River. So they technically were already in the land of Israel. So they're already in the land of Israel, so let everybody stay. So there's actually, there's two parts. It's a little complicated, but it's uh, interesting to hear. Anything they touched, anything they conquered, would be the land of Israel. However, um, God's presence is only going to be in uh, uh, where they cross on the west western side of the Jordan. That's where God's presence will be, which is why, by the way, you can only build a temple in that area. So that those types of commandments will only exist in Jerusalem. That's where the temple is going to be built. So, and that seems to be what Moses wants. In other words, even though Moses is going to be praying, this is part of the, the back and forth. If you say it's the land of Israel, then why is Moses praying to God to go into Israel? He's technically there. So the answer that the, Moses wanted the area where there's more, more holiness, he really wanted the area that God would give. There's different words that that matter, words do matter, and this was an area that was conquered, while the land of Israel is God's going to give it to us, it'll be miraculous battles, and one day we'll get to all those battles, I hope. So Moses wants into the land where there's more holiness, Moses wanted to build the temple, again the temple is a, will be a focus um, over the next few weeks, and so hopefully next week, because again that, uh, we won't call it a holiday, but that fast day coming up called Tisha B'Av, or the ninth day of Av, um, is coming up because of the destruction of the two temples. But here we're discussing getting ready to build it. So, so again, so the land of Israel encompasses both sides of the Jordan. So the children of Ruvain and the children of God, those two tribes, were in the land of Israel. They just weren't in the part of the land where there was more holiness. So even though they should on their own want more holiness... But it seems that you can't have a complaint on somebody. If you, if you don't want the more holiness, we can't force you because all the commandments could be done. Moses wants that opportunity to build the temple, to have that extra holiness. That's what he's looking for. And again, not everybody is in agreement with this answer. So those who are emailing me that they don't like this answer will deal with it. 
um, when the time comes. So that's what happens with these two tribes. That again, the two tribes complain to Moses. They have the respect to listen to Moses, even though they, they had an answer. So they were respectful. They listened to what Moses had to say. And it's a lot of verses. It's a lot of getting yelled at. Hopefully most of you haven't experienced getting yelled at too much. But uh, they accepted it, which is good. Um, then they tell Moses, don't worry, we're going to lead the battle. And you find out later when we, when we run into Joshua, and Joshua's in the land of Israel, these two tribes go to Joshua and say, um, Joshua, you're in charge. We told Moses we're going to lead the charge. Anybody who starts up with you, you just let us know. We'll take care of the situation. You have nothing to worry about. We got your back. So, uh, so they're going to they're gonna build. Again, first they said they were going to build corrals for their animals and then houses for their children or cities for their children. Moses says we take care of children first. And then we, bring, then we build the corrals. And they're already, now, now we're really, what's going to be happening now is we're uh, at this point, we're, we're getting ready for the Jewish people to go into the land of Israel. And uh, by next week's Torah portion, in the last book, we actually finish up um, the book of Numbers. This week we'll finish up that book. And uh, we have 30 days left to the life of Moses. And he's going to give his last uh, messages to the Jewish people. And I hear my music. So we're going to be back. And make sure you're ready. We're going to be talking to Deborah Levine, author of The Liberator's Daughter. You don't want to miss this conversation. So make sure you hold on through the break. And we'll be right back.
And we're back. And a few technical difficulties. So if you're watching, you could see the commercials. If you're listening, a little bit of difficulty on the sound of the commercials. It just means I have to talk longer. So in any case, um, we're going to now talk to Deborah Levine, author of The Liberator's Daughter, many books. And this is for Deborah, this song, by the way. I hope she recognizes it when we say hello. That's what we needed. Executive Director for many Jewish federations and JCs in Rockford, Illinois, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Founder and editor of the American Diversity Report, Harvard grad, long list of stuff. Deborah, are you there? I am here. Thank you very much. Good. Did you like the song? Loved it. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure you knew I read your book because I can't remember if it's one of the titles of the chapter or you just write in the book that that was one of your songs. I figured it would be a nice thing to put in. Well, thank you. I so appreciate your reading the book and having me on. It is my pleasure. I must say, um, as I'm looking at all the different things you're involved in, um, so I'm a teacher. I do a lot of things. So last night we actually had uh, someone come speak to the group. So there's all kinds of different letters and names for children with different disabilities. And, you know, the ADD, ADHD is always one of them. I tell people I do so many things I can't sit still. That's part of my ADD, now called ADHD. So you don't have to answer, but I just wonder, with all this stuff you keep getting involved in, do you have ADD? <laughs> no, I'm just crazy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that, that works. I, I never used to, I, I didn't tell people I'm crazy, but you are definitely a very fascinating and, uh, and a person who keeps very, very busy. But um, if you could, before we start talking about your book, could you just talk about yourself for a few minutes so we, we know who you are? Uh, sure, sure. And it's a pleasure. Uh, I'd like folks to know that while I was born in Brooklyn, I was brought up in Bermuda, and my family is the only Jewish family in Bermuda's history to have lived and worked on the island for four generations. <laughs> Amazing. How about that? Yeah, some people go there um, for vacation, which um, you had an article about that, where it seems there was a time where there were too many Jews going on vacation to Bermuda. What was that story? During the um, time leading up to World War II, there were uh, measures taken to limit the number of Jewish tourists who would come down and where they could stay. It was very unfortunate. It was part of the world's discrimination and prejudice against Jews, and it did take place on the island. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And, uh, yeah, and you saw this. So you were the only Jewish family growing up in Bermuda, um, but we're going to talk about it. Your parents were very involved in Jewish things over the years. Were you able to do anything, I guess, Jewish on the island? There was no synagogue, and there still isn't today. However, the uh, military base, the United States military base, which no longer exists down there, but in those days had a number of Jewish people there, and so there was a congregation 
that met on the base. And uh, I would go there with my father and my grandfather, sometime to services. The biggest uh, event for us was always Pesach. And we imported a rabbi for that, and I believe they still do. And all the tourists, the military personnel, anyone from embassies, we all gathered together to share um, uh, Passover, and it was wonderful. So you have good memories of it. Oh, it the best. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Okay, so we're going to talk. Um, you've written numerous books, but the book yes. you asked me to read is The Liberator's Daughter. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you're the daughter. Your father is the liberator. And um, I'll, I'll tell you some stories I know from my own friends, um, but let's, let's, uh, let's take it from the beginning. So your father dra- was drafted, was enlisted. How did your father get into the American Army? Okay, so uh, he enlisted. And it took him a while to enlist because he was so skinny. So he had to um, fill up on ice cream sodas and banana sundaes. Uh, And then he made the weight, and he enlisted. uh, And it was uh, midway, if not towards the end of the war by that time. Uh, He went to uh, boot camp and uh, was taken out of boot camp and sent to a secret military intelligence camp at, uh, uh, in Maryland, uh, Fort Ritchie it's called, it's now a museum, where they trained people like him who had language skills, he could speak German and French, uh, to uh, interrogate Nazi prisoners of war and uh, basically uh, gather information. And that was his training. So that was, he was gathering information at the end of the war? And yes, I, towards the end of the war, now, um, he, he did end up going to uh, the U.K. first, but then the, he was needed in Paris and then in Belgium towards the end of the war, and he, he had to stay there even when the war was over in terms of uh, interrogating Nazi prisoners of war and looking at uh, what was happening in the death camps. Uh, so that's the part I really was, was interested to, to get into. Um, I actually have a friend's father who was a regular soldier, not anything in intelligence, and he was one of the first soldiers into the death camps. That was your word. It's a good word. Mm-hmm. Um, your father went in to, to help the prisoners in the death camps. Did he, he talk to you about the death camps? What, what, what was his role, I guess, when he saw what was going on? I think he saw several of the camps, and his role was uh, to uh, determine whether the Nazis involved uh, would be imprisoned, uh, re-educated, what would happen to them, and what they had done. Uh, He did, however, uh, talk about one camp in particular called Nordhausen, uh, which uh, was uh, an underground uh, industrial camp where uh, they, they made uh, bombers, but they also sent uh, the uh, bodies from the other camps. And when, he, when they opened the door, uh, he 
wrote about being able to smell the 2,000 bodies stacked up like so much lumber. And I think when he talked about that, um, he said to me that um, they opened the door and there was a couple of the prisoners and one, they were so thin, they, they were starved, those who were still alive. Uh, one said to him, do you know my cousin Mo in Brooklyn? And then just dropped dead. Hmm. Yeah, wow. it, it stuck in his mind forever. So in reading your book, it doesn't sound like your father shared a lot of these things when he first came back. Did, I mean, did was this? Yeah. A, you wrote about that he always wrote letters, or he, or I guess he kept a diary. Uh, how did you find out this information? When did you find out this information? What happened? Yes, he rarely spoke about it uh, in our childhood. Every now and then he did. He, uh, I, when I found out that he was a soldier in in the war, I, I was just a little girl, and I asked him if he killed anybody, and he said, no, but I slapped somebody once. I said, what was that all about? He said it was a, a Nazi who said that the only thing that Hitler did wrong was not kill more Jews. Uh, and I, I, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around that. I had no context for it, and it would be decades before uh, I learned more. Uh, I was working in Tulsa when uh, Schindler's List came out. And it was shortly after the Oklahoma City bombing, and it, my job, in part, was to uh, prepare Holocaust survivors to... Um, tell their story to the media. And my father came to visit, and uh, I told him, you believe this? They've never told these stories to anybody, including their own children, their own families. And my dad said, well, I've never told you my stories. I don't blame them. And that was the beginning of finding out what exactly he had done and where he'd been, and that he had all these letters that uh, he had written my mother and, and asked her to save, and all her letters to him. Uh, and they were in file cabinets in his closet. Wow. Oh, you know, it's like, I would say the, the olden days. I'm not that young, but I'm not that old either. Um, <laughs> no, and I was the, the idea of, of, of parents saving the letters that they wrote back and forth. I mean, maybe you save your emails that you send back and forth. But but we don't save, you know, my wife likes to keep all our birthday cards and the little notes we wrote, and it's in a folder somewhere. But but that idea of, of saving all the letters that your father could turn around and say, here's history, and you took that history and you created a book out of it is, is really just an eye-opener because most of the Holocaust stories that people hear are coming from, oh, I see my music is coming up. So, yeah, most of the Holocaust stories are coming from survivors, not from people that went in. Um, I'm on with Deborah Levine 
author of Liberators, The Liberator's Daughter. Um, Deborah, I hope you can stay with us because I got a break. I'm up against it. We'll be back in a few minutes and we'll continue this conversation. So hold on. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back with Deborah Levine, author of The Liberator's Daughter, amongst other books and other things we got to find out about Deborah's fascinating life that's taken her um, to many countries and certainly more cities than I've been to in different parts of the country. Deborah, are you still there? I am here. Great. So we were talking about, um, it's just interesting that all the Holocaust books that I read are really coming from survivors. While your book is, at least the first, we'll call it the first half of it, is is coming from somebody who liberated the camps and was dealing with the Nazis and can, can tell people what he saw, because I don't think people, like you said, it's hard. That kind of, 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 of evil is hard for us regular people to wrap our minds around. So, yes, I think it is, it is very rare to have a liberator uh, be uh, reporting and documenting, uh, which is why I felt so compelled to do this, to write the book, to put his letters in, go out and speak about what he saw. Uh, I, I, how could I not? So did, did your father ever speak, um, I guess, publicly to people about what he saw? Or it was sort of... Uh... Just something that, I guess, in the 60s, people didn't do, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever. He did not. However, uh, when I found out 
what he had done when I was working in Tulsa, I arranged for him to do a radio program about it. Uh, and uh, with a, a, a Jewish colleague who happened to be the president of the law school there and uh, the, a host on the radio program. Uh, and that's when I found out, just like everyone else who was listening, a lot of what he had done and seen. Wow, unbelievable. Um, before I yeah. get it, it really <laughs> that's is. That's what I thought. You know, and that's I... when I found out the letters existed. I didn't know about them. Here, growing up all those years, and you have no idea what your father witnessed, what he saw, what he wrote about. And you're, how old were you when you, or how old was your father, whichever one you want to pick. Um, but <laughs> you, you weren't a teenager anymore when you found out that your father um, was involved in stuff that, uh, that people just hear about. Absolutely. I was in my 40s, and I had already spent quite a number of years working for the Jewish community and working with someone like Father John Palakowski, who was one of the original members of the U.S. Holocaust Commission, Museum Commission, uh, and I, I still didn't know. Now, later, I told John, and he wrote the foreword to the book, uh, but he was as amazed as I was about my history. So it was already in your blood that you had to get involved with a Holocaust, and you didn't even know why. That's correct. amazing. That's Because, you know, I wrote down a question I was going to ask you. Um, you've certainly been involved in numerous um, Jewish organizations here in Detroit. Um, I, Detroit's a fascinating community. Um, you've worked with many federations, but I don't know if you know how the Detroit community works. The, the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit gives millions of dollars a year to um, Orthodox day schools, which is almost unheard of um, in the rest of the country. They are, they are unique, and the blend of everyone who's involved in the Federation here is unique. Uh, but you have your own experiences, because I know you're in a JCC, we already said, and well, now you're in Chattanooga. I don't know if you're in the Federation there anymore, but in, but in Rockford and in... And in Tulsa, I mean, you've been around um, Jewish <laughs> federations. I mean, it's a... Yes. It's, it is... So what I wanted to ask you was, I was going to say your father's work, but you didn't know what your father did. But your mother was also heavily involved in, uh, in Jewish education. Um, did your parents plant in you that seed that you needed, wanted to work in Jewish organizations? Or that's just how the jobs turned up? When we first came to the States, uh, my mother, uh, who had taught Latin at the Bermuda High School for Girls, started to study to teach Hebrew and uh, took me along with her. And when she got a job as a, a teacher in, uh, in Great Neck, New York, uh, she took me along with her as her student aide. Uh, I don't think that I, I was all that useful that young, uh, but uh, that's how she uh, educated me and socialized me. And I was a student aide until I graduated high school. Very smart uh, mother. And then it seemed natural to take myself over to Harvard Divinity School to study what they called Old Testament, but I wanted to hear more from Harvard Divinity School, and I spent quite a, a lot of time studying there. 
Uh, so because of your studying with your mother, who is a brilliant mother because she gets her kid to go to, to a day school and you don't even realize yeah. you're supposed to be fighting with her about going because she convinced you to help her. <laughs> and then, and then, you, then, then you went to Harvard. That's a pretty good jump from, uh, from some <laughs> afternoon Jewish day school to Harvard. Okay, I get that. And then, yeah, then I guess the next fit is to, uh, is to go to different federations. So you told me that you were involved in different Holocaust projects in some of those federations. Um, could you share some of those with mm-hmm. us? Yes, absolutely. But I, I do want to say that uh, I've been very, very fortunate in my parents, and both my, both my father and my mother from Bermuda and my father from immigrants who had little education both went to Harvard, and that's where they met. And uh, so I'm in their footsteps. And when I got to Rockford, Illinois, I was still getting finishing my master's in Jewish studies at Spertus in Chicago. And I chose as one of my class projects to create a video about the Holocaust that could be used in classrooms. And I wrote the script. Who else was going to, right? right I wrote right. the script. I had a friend do the videotaping, and I, I put interviews of people who had been uh, medical personnel in the camps when they were first discovered helping the, the survivors, the victims, talk about what they had seen. Uh, it, it was just stunning. Along with the survivors themselves, uh, um, my my videotaper, as we started it, he said, are you sure you're ready for this? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But I wasn't. I learned so much, and I kept on going. And did, did, your fa- did you show your father that video? This was before and after you found out how your father was involved um, um, with survivors. Uh, it was before. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, my my dad didn't have much to say about it. He really was so quiet. He didn't have much to say until uh, I was invited to the opening of the Holocaust Museum in D.C. And I knew he had served in some way. And I asked him if he'd like to join me. And his response was, not over, no, 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 <laughs> no way. And I'm really? not even going to repeat what he said. He said, I already saw the real thing. Uh, it wow. started to dawn on me just what my heritage was. It's amazing. And you're lucky enough that, you know, some people, certainly children of survivors, um, I, I know all these uh, different types of people, their children are survivors, and they wake up. Their parents could be in their 80s, and they say, my parents never told me what was going on. They wouldn't talk about it. They wanted to shield me. They wanted me to be a good American, and, and I never found out. And here you were involved, research, checking, going to the opening of the Holocaust Center in D.C., and your father has not yet let on of what's going on. It is just, it's amazing. Like, and when he was ready to talk, he knew that this was your language already. Uh, yes, he did, uh, and uh, it was interesting in that uh, part of why I think he started to open up to me was because I became a writer that was, was pretty decent, 
and that he was so proud. For example, my one of my first books, uh, Teaching Curious Christians About Judaism, won a National Press Prize. That he felt more comfortable in sharing all these things and knowing that I was going to write about it, and it would be a quality book. Uh, he wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with it, I think, before then. <laughs> he, he was not an easy, warm and fuzzy man in some ways. Maybe because of some of those things that he saw. But, Pretty um, much. You know, not that I'm the greatest judge, but I actually did enjoy um, your language, how the book flowed. Um, everyone else will uh, make their own decision. Again, that's uh, this is uh, Deborah Levine, author of The Liberator's Daughter, and as she just told you, a different book which I didn't write down. I think you've written twelve books, if I if I have it right. Um, but one, yeah. I think I got time to squeeze in one more quick question. Um, the second half of the book is not really about your father. It's the book is the Liberator's Daughter. So you spend a mm-hmm. nice part talking about. Um, who your father was and how he got to where he was and liberating and and uh, and interviewing or or whatever he's doing with the Nazis and then you really get into your own life and where life took you. Why did you want to add that to the book? I think because there was an amazement on my part as I read how much I must have absorbed unconsciously about my father, his attitudes. The books he read, the music he shared with me, there there was some unconscious education going on there, and I wanted people to see what I did with it, rather than just, um, oh, yes, here are some nice letters. You know, there's a lot of activity, and I am so sorry that he is no longer around to see what I'm doing with it now. He'd be very, very pleased, and he'd be bragging on me a lot and really driving a lot of folks crazy with it. <laughs> he was such a sweetie in many ways. And, and one of the things that uh, comes to mind is that I'm hoping it's a model for other people, that they can educate their children in so many different ways to become a really substantial person who makes a difference, who goes out there every day and tries their best, innovates, creates. Yes, certainly something with all, which I'm not going to have time today, all the many things you're involved in, you certainly like to innovate and create, and you you started the the American Diversity Report, which we're not going to talk about today. But (laughs) um, there is one story, you know, I'm not sure if I got it so clear, um, premonition, maybe, when you were looking forward to finally going to Israel and you, you sort of had this dream of what you were going to see and then you showed up and that's what you saw. You weren't. Yeah. So, what happened over there? So, I really uh, wasn't prepared for these, these sights that I would see as I was driving down. To the uh, to the local grocery store uh, uh, that that looked like pictures I'd seen in Israel, but I hadn't personally. And when I got to Israel and we're driving down uh, in the bus uh, towards Tel Aviv, there it was. Huh. It was just stunning to me, and I think that is the mystic in me. 
of, of the experience of going to Israel and, for example, going up onto Masada and leaving the group uh, and going to where I felt called. Deborah, I'm, you know, I feel terrible. We're going to have another conversation another day because you have so many things to talk about. I appreciate you spending your time and sharing your story. Go out there. You can go on Amazon or all the other places you can get fine books. Again, that was Deborah Levine, um, author, Liberator's Daughter. Deborah, thank you so much. And um, we're going to be back in a few minutes. So hold on. We got lots of stuff left. Again, Deborah, thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you. Want to stay informed, entertained, and enlightened? Get connected and stay connected today to New Radio Media. The New Radio Media app is now available for download in the Apple and Google Play Store. Just search for NRM Streams for unlimited access to archived, live, new, exciting, and unique content. Welcome to Geektainment Weekly. All for free. Do it now. Stay connected. And action. And millions of ducks. Two guys go to newradiomedia.com. The Arts and Entertainment Channel on New Radio Media. Dot. What's going on in your neighborhood? They say it takes a village. It's the simple things. The things that are a testament to the old. The things that are a testament to the new. Know what's going on in your community. Check out our community channel on newradiomedia.com. It's all about you, and that's the way we like it. Where you're going. What you do to stay fit. What you're eating. What you're thinking. And how you're feeling. Join the conversation at NewRadioMedia.com's Lifestyles channel. Stream the life you want to live. And we're back, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Deborah Levine, a fascinating lady, and I feel bad I cut her off when she was climbing Masada, but, you know, uh, we got to pay the bills, and they only let me sit here so long, even though they're trying to get me to sit here longer. But in any case, um, usually we do it the, in, the, um, in the segment before, but of course we start our new segment with uh, Rabbi Jonas and Goldson, and he gets two minutes to tell us something inspirational. Ben, are you ready? Okay, we're ready for Rabbi Jonas and Goldson. Go for it. This past Monday, the watchdog group Campus Reform interviewed college students around New York City to ask what they thought of President Trump's nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. A fair question. 
except for the minor detail that Mr. Trump had not yet announced his selection. But that didn't stop one college student after another from voicing their opinions. He's not balanced. He's too conservative. He's racist. He doesn't represent the people. The fact that there was no nominee didn't prevent these students from having an opinion about what kind of person he was. In this week's Torah portion, Moses builds three cities of refuge on the eastern side of the Jordan River to balance the three cities that would later be established inside the land of Israel itself. These cities provided a place where unintentional murderers could flee and atone for their sin by living in exile. So here's the question. If three cities were enough for the 80% of the Jewish population that lived in Israel, why were the same number of cities necessary for the 20% who lived across the Jordan? Rashi explains that murder was more common outside the borders of Israel, and this teaches us a powerful lesson. When we live in a spiritual environment, we naturally acquire moral sensitivity and clarity. When we live in a society that is distant from spirituality, moral confusion is inevitable. For us, that means that as the culture around us becomes more out of touch with basic values and increasingly disinterested in facts, we have to become ever more diligent to ensure that we do not become afflicted by the same kind of moral blindness. Wishing everyone a good Shabbos. Thank you, Rabbi Jonathan Goldson. And he was really good. That was under two minutes. That, okay, we, he's doing exactly what we need. Got a little trending news in there for those who've been paying attention. Um, I'm just going to um, just explain um, there was a command to build six cities of refuge. A city of refuge means that if somebody commits murder by mistake, whatever by mistake means, it's certainly not planned. Um, he, he didn't realize he dropped something, he killed someone, he was chopping wood, something happened. Someone who murders by mistake, um, in those days, um, you had the relatives that they would come after you, so you were safe in these cities of refuge. There were actually six. And the six, they didn't work unless all six were in operation. But Moses actually went ahead and made three, even though they weren't going to work yet, because you needed the other three to be in existence. But Moses wanted to touch any mitzvah he could, even though he couldn't finish it. Um, Kelsey, you ready for our poster? Kelsey is ready. Okay, we as we are... Traveling around our second round in our Jewish alphabet, we're up to the third letter. Hopefully it's up there, the letter Gimel. The letter Gimel is the third letter. It has a G sound. Um, its numerical value is three. And um, three is interesting. I told you in that period of time called the three weeks, these three weeks that we, we think about uh, the destruction of the temple, and what it means to us and how we, we act. People won't get married during this time. People won't uh, play music. People won't get haircuts. People won't buy um, new furniture or new clothes and stuff. Anyways, Gimel, I have a great word for you. The word for Gimel is Godol. Godol means big. Not only does it mean big, though, it happens to mean grown-up. We call a child at his bar mitzvah or a girl at her bat mitzvah a gadol, an adult, which is really kind of interesting for those of you who have children that are uh, 12 and 13 years old. They don't seem much of an adult to me. So what are they an adult for? 
So interesting, they count for a quorum, and that now they're required to do uh, commandments and to study and all that stuff. Um, but really what happens is they, that child, who is now an adult, has received his good inclination. He's born with a bad inclination uh, to not be so good, and God puts in that good inclination at the age of, again, for a girl, 12, at, at a boy, it's 13. But, you know, your bad inclination has a 12 or 13-year head start. So the child, I'm not saying the child's of age for drinking alcohol or for renting a car, driving a car. Those things, I'm not uh, I'm not saying they're old enough for. But they are interesting enough, um, eligible to make a quorum, what we call a minion. You need 10 men. You could have nine great rabbis, but they don't have a quorum yet. That, 13, that 13-year-old child... Um, fills the group, and now they can pray um, as a group. So just an interesting word to think about, that word, uh, that word, Godol, is our word of the week. Um, I have no idea how much time I have left. I don't have any time left. I can't even talk about Tishabov. Anyways, next week again, we're going to have a fantastic show. We're going to do some interviews in the Holocaust Center here in Detroit. Um, before I go, thank you to our wonderful sponsors and listeners. I couldn't do without you. Thank you to my wonderful team this week. Ben, Kelsey, Angel, Alyssa. I hope I've left you all with some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi C. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on New Radio Media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.